The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Well, the Holy Christian Church has taken her fair share of hits in recent years. I don't know if you've noticed. I don't know if you read the news. Yeah, I know you do. You read it every morning. You wake up and that's the first thing that you do, right? It seems like the hits just keep on coming. Every morning you wake up, you scroll through your news feed, and you find that the world is not only going to hell in a handbasket, but that it is whistling and skipping along the way. In our country, the days are gone in which you can gain any kind of social advantage from being a Christian. And the teachings of Holy Scripture are held up for contempt by those who have adopted modern progressive ideologies. The claim that there is only one way to salvation and unto eternal life, and it's through Jesus Christ our Lord, is now labeled hate speech. Any basic assertions that are made from Scripture are deemed archaic and bigoted, and that's being kind. The American church has not yet entered any real persecution. Not yet. Especially in comparison with our brothers and sisters who do suffer real persecution worldwide. But I have to say, the trajectory is there. The kindling is in place. Perhaps within the next generation or so, it will be illegal to say any of the things that I'm going to say here this evening. It's a brilliant strategy by the enemy. He hates God's Word. He hates God's Word because it's the very thing that God uses to accomplish His will and His purposes. It's the thing that kills and makes alive. It is His Word that bestows all the benefits of salvation and eternal life. So Satan would love nothing more, brothers and sisters, than to silence God's Word, or at the very least, at the very least, cast doubt upon it twist it just a little bit so that we know so that we no longer take god at his word did god actually say did god actually say were his words to eve in the garden of eden it is the devil who works evil in this world he 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 causes the world to hate god's word even to go so far as to label it hate speech. So I wouldn't blame you th for thinking that he's got us right where he wants us. What chance does, does any of us stand? What chance does the church stand? Who are we to stem the tide of culture? Many have left the Christian faith now that you can no longer add it to your resume. Some 50% of our kids will go off to college and quit church altogether, never to return. The tried and true evangelism strategies of the past, they just don't seem to work anymore. The levee has broken. The walls are closing in. And in our collective panic, we're desperately searching for a cure. We're doing everything that we can to bring people to church. We're grabbing onto the next big thing in American Christianity, that thing that's going to ultimately get people back to church. But what we end up doing is making weird Christian knockoff versions of what the, of what the world already provides. I hate to break it to you, but the world doesn't care. 
We know that the world hates God's word, and yet we desperately try to be like the world. Maybe if the world will just see that we're not all that weird. We're not weird. We're just like them. Then maybe they'll be more open to Christianity. As I already said, the world does not care. I hate to sound pessimistic here. I'm going to get to the good news in just a second. But the world does not care. Try something else. So we go back to the drawing board and we wonder how how might we hold up the light of Christ for the world to see? Well, at the same time, how can we have strength? How can we have strength to bear this light of Christ? How might our spirits in our arms be strengthened to do the holding? What if I told you that Jesus has given us something that cannot be found anywhere else except in the Holy Christian Church. He has given us a refuge in this hellscape of a world. He's given us a means by which we can receive strength and comfort that His Word might ring true in our ears where we can simply take Him at His Word and His promise. When Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, ascended on high, He did not abandon us. He did not abandon us, but He ascended so that He might be present with His church in a way that He was not previously. He ascended to the right hand of power, meaning meaning that He took up those divine attributes that He did not avail Himself of during His state of humiliation. He took up those divine attributes so that He might rule and reign over all things and that He might exercise His divine authority as a man. And with such authority, brothers and sisters, He has promised to locate Himself in a specific place, in a specific time, for a specific purpose. He has made us a promise. He has bound Himself somewhere so that we would know where to find Him and receive all of His saving benefits. Do this, He said. Do this. This was Jesus' last will and His Last Testament, his last will and testament. It's akin to Old Testament figures that we see like Jacob and Moses. Uh, Whenever Jacob and Moses went to die, they actually gave these final words to Israel. They gave blessings to the leaders who would stand in their place. These men that were called to replace these great patriarchs. So these were the final marching orders, so to speak. Here Jesus was passing on his blessings and his benefits to those who would comprise the new Israel, the Christian church. This was no time to mince words. This was no time to get cute or to use metaphors. It was time to speak plainly. The setting was just right, a Passover meal. He sent Peter and John to make the preparations. And just like the events of the triumphal entry, Jesus knew exactly where they were to go. He knew exactly to whom they were supposed to speak. Jesus is in control of this whole thing. He's in control the entire time. He's the God of the universe in human flesh, all set to be tortured 
and killed in the most horrific way for the sins of the world. And in this moment, brothers and sisters, in this moment, he can think of nothing that he'd rather do than have a meal with his friends. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So this is not to be confused. This piece of Scripture is not to be confused with the actual Lord's Supper. This is right before the Lord's Supper. He hasn't gotten there yet. This is called a Passover Seder. This is a meal in the, in the Jewish community that uh, it consisted of a series of blessings and liturgical actions that commemorated the events of the Exodus. When God brought His people out of slavery in Egypt with a, with a, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, And all of that was climaxed in the blood of the Passover lamb that the Israelites placed over their doorposts. Death passed over them that day. But death came upon the firstborn of the Egyptians. So to partake in this Passover meal was to be incorporated into those events of the past. See, you weren't there when it happened. But by partaking of the meal, you actually became a part of it. And the central course of that meal was a lamb. It was a lamb that you wouldn't just look at. It was a lamb that you wouldn't just think about. It was a lamb that you would eat. Note that you actually ate the lamb. You did not eat a symbol of the lamb. You did not eat a picture of the lamb. You ate the lamb. And as you ate the lamb, you became one with God's people. His people of promise. And you inherited all the blessings of the kingdom of God. And it was that same kingdom of God that Jesus referenced that that he said that he would not eat or drink the Passover until all was fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You see, there was a greater exodus coming. A greater exodus. There was a new Passover that was coming and it was to be Jesus' death and resurrection. This wasn't just to be any Passover, brothers and sisters, but this was Jesus' Passover. Jesus earnestly wanted to celebrate with His friends those that He had come to know and love so deeply in spite of their incredible flaws. But He also intended to leave something for them. To leave something that would endure Something not just for them, but for you and me as well. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There's something about this breaking of bread that is distinct from all other meals. This is not merely a piece of bread that we're talking about, but something else is identified with it. Something else and more noble, more holy is added here. 
This bread that he holds in his hand is his body. Remember, this is Jesus' last will and testament. This is no time for him to get cute. And I would add to you, this is no time for us to doubt his words. This is no time for us to doubt that Jesus called the bread in his hand his very body. Because Satan would love nothing more than to rear his crushed serpentine head. He would love nothing more than to pop in right here and say, well, he said it was his body, but did he really mean that? And the same goes for his blood, which was in that cup, that same cup that he held up. It was the one that was poured out for you. It is the New Testament in his blood. And here Satan Satan would say, disgusting. Do you really mean to drink blood? Do you mean to drink blood? That is gross. To which we say, yes. Yes, we will eat his flesh and drink his blood because it is that same body and blood that won salvation for us. And by eating that flesh and by drinking that blood, we receive everything that Jesus won for us on the cross. We become a part of him and he a part of us. And let us not forget that this is for his remembrance. Do this for my remembrance. This idea, everything that's caught up in this idea, it's much more than just thinking about something that happened a long time ago. We're talking about the biblical idea of remembrance. See, when the Israelites ate the Passover lamb, they did indeed think about something that happened a long time ago. They thought about God's salvation that he delivered in the Exodus. But by remembering, they were actually participating in a very real event. In 1 Corinthians 10, St. Paul puts it like this. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Participation, fellowship, oneness, communion. The term is koinonia in the Greek. All words that we can use to describe what is happening in the meal that the Lord instituted on the night that he was betrayed. We're talking about very real participation with the true body of of our Lord and his true blood his true body and his true blood, because he is the Lamb of God who gives himself on the cross in a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins and presents himself at the altar as both our host and our meal for Christians to eat and to drink. This was Christ's last will and testament. Perhaps he could have done something else with his time, He was in his final moments before his betrayal and his death. Those were troubling times for Jesus. He was about to go out to Gethsemane. He was about to sweat giant drops of blood. He was about to to be betrayed by one of his best friends. He was about to be denied three times by his best friend. He was about to be handed over to sinful men to be scourged, to be mocked, beaten, 
spat upon and crucified on a Roman cross. He was about to be hung there as a naked criminal for all the world to see, to be abandoned by his father. You'd think he had cause for major anxiety. But here he was, reclining at table with his friends. His brothers. His brothers that he wanted to strengthen for the days ahead. That they might hold up the light of Christ for all the world to see. That they might be undeniably bound together in fellowship and in unity. Now think of all those things that I mentioned before. Think of the changing cultural tide, the attacks on God's word and on his church. Think about the declining membership in our churches. Think about the worldwide persecution of Christians. Has Jesus abandoned us? Has he left us to fend for ourselves in a den of ravenous wolves? Do you think it's his will that the church succumb to the hordes of hell? Do you think it's his will that true Christian faith be wiped out altogether? You know the answer. He has promised that it will never be so. The gates of hell will never prevail against his church. We don't have to worry about the future of Christ's bride because it is secure. Jesus has already promised it. He's promised us a future, a wedding feast of rich food in the kingdom of God, which he has fulfilled in his death and resurrection. And he gives us a foretaste of that heavenly banquet that's to come. He gives us a foretaste even now amid our enemies. Because while you and I are busy worrying about the attacks of the devil, the world, and the flesh, Jesus is here reclining at the table inviting you to be his honored guest. And he says to you, take heart. I have overcome the world. He has made you a very real promise that he is here to give himself to you for the forgiveness of sins in this meal. My friends, now is not the time for doubt. Now is the time to take him at his word. Do this, he said. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.